Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two guests today. We'll hear from the economist Laura Derenencourt on the frustratingly persistent black-white wealth gap, and from David Gellis, author of a new book on Jack Welch, the legendary CEO of GE in the 1980s and 1990s, who drove the company into the ground. Despite a massive narrowing of educational gaps and the entry of scores of millions of black Americans into middle and upper middle class jobs, the racial wealth gap has persisted. Why is that, and why is it important? And how is it not, as some argue, a mere function of class? My first guest, Laura Derenencourt, is one of four authors of a new working paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research, Wealth of Two Nations, the U.S. Racial Wealth Gap, 1860-2020. to It's fallen substantially since the Civil War, but progress stopped around 1980, and the gap remains stuck at around 6 to 1. I should emphasize that we're talking about wealth, assets like bank accounts and stock holdings, less liabilities like mortgage and credit card debts, and not income, which is what one takes in in salary, pension benefits, or interest and dividends over the course of a year. Laura Durenencourt is an assistant professor of economics at Princeton. Laura Durenencourt. Why does the wealth gap matter? You know, in a functioning social welfare state, ideally wealth wouldn't matter, but... (laughs) We don't have one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just, you know, just for starters, let's start there. In the absence of one, though, wealth is what allows people to weather major negative shocks, like losing your job, illness, losing your home, um, being displaced because of natural disasters, you know, any any, um, major shocks like that. And uh, we also know that wealth plays a growing role in our political system through campaign contributions and sort of this revolving door between corporations and politicians. Um, but there's maybe even an additional reason that we've just started, at least in economics, scraping the surface of, which is that wealth likely plays a role in the labor market as well by allowing displaced workers to hold out for the best possible match in terms of employment. Um, and I think we're seeing a bit of that today. Uh, there's some conjecture that savings during the pandemic contributed to this tight labor market, allowing workers to sort of wait and see if they can get uh, a better offer. Much to the annoyance of employers. Right. Yes. Um, and uh, I'm sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but if you take two households with the same income, the white household is likely to have a much higher level of wealth than um, the black household, right? Yes. So how did you put this all together? It's an impressive uh, bit of research and empirical (laughs) work you've done here. Uh, Could you describe what you did? Yeah, absolutely. So when we embarked on this project, we were facing about 100 years of a data desert on the national white-black wealth gap in the United States. So it actually turns out that for the very early years, we can rely on the U.S. Census. The U.S. Census used to collect information on wealth in the late 19th century. In 1860 and 1870, they collected quite comprehensive information on wealth. Um, But then after that, they phase out this question. And pretty much the next point in time where people have been able to consistently measure wealth with demographic information like race is uh, starting in the 1980s. So the panel survey of income dynamics added a wealth module, I think, in 1984. And then uh, many economists were using the survey of consumer finances, which, uh, you know, is most readily available in the 1980s onwards as well. So we basically relied on dozens of sources to build up this time series to fill in that gap and and to really validate that our estimates, you know, we really believe them. Um, And that process included using historical tax reports from specific southern states where they actually tabulated the wealth of their black and white populations separately. This is in the late 19th and early 20th century. We supplemented that with national reports on black economic status that were published by this sociologist named Monroe Nathan Work. It was a series called The Negro Yearbook. And he this is one of the few places where we were able to find national estimates of Black wealth. We verify these data points using housing wealth from the census, uh, farm wealth from the census of agriculture, which 
also in the early 20th century recorded black farm wealth separately and uh, historical survey data and were able to extend you know national estimates of black wealth through to about 1940 using these different sources and then we are able to construct you know what we call the white to black wealth ratio by deducting black wealth from national wealth and then dividing by the non-black population or the black population for each respective wealth measure and then from the 1950s onwards we do rely on the survey of consumer finances so that actually did start in the late 1940s but was in a very unusable format basically kind of just a hodgepodge of ascii um files and no clear way to read those in to back out what they represent and my co-authors had in a prior study basically harmonized all of these waves of the survey of consumer finances using these code books that you could use to back out what questions and what answers corresponded to what in these outdated file formats So putting that all of that together we were able to um construct this wealth series the white to black per capita wealth ratio from 1860 to 2020. It reminds me of the stuff that uh, Piketty did, right, and his colleagues just looking at old records, putting things together by hand, really tedious manual work, right? Yes, um but it was it was necessary. We we thought it was important and then, you know, honestly the what came out of that sort of surprised all of us. Okay, so let's just talk about the broad historical trend, rapid decline in the ratio uh, and then leading to a flattening in recent time. Could you just give us the uh, the outline of the contours of of the black-white wealth ratio over the years? We're able to look at this national trend since before the Civil War, since our starting point is 1860, and at that point in time, our data showed the wealth gap was approximately 60 to 1, the ratio of per capita white to black wealth. this squares with 90% of black americans actually being enslaved at that point in time legally barred from holding property there they are themselves property by 1870 this ratio falls to 23 to 1 so that's a drop of about 60% and it's worth noting that most of this is actually coming from black wealth accumulation after the civil war and, and emancipation only about a quarter of that drop is from the loss of slave wealth which was abolished as a category of wealth with the civil war as well by 1920 the gap falls further to around 10 to 1 and then by 1950 it's 7 to 1 and this was what we all found quite remarkable it's been basically stable since uh hovering between 5 and 7 to 1 in the last uh 70 years And then most recently there's been an upward trend in the racial wealth gap as in it's no longer converging. Okay, so what was driving these historical trends? First uh, that uh, the immediate post-emancipation decades. Why the increase in black wealth? What was driving that? When you have one group of the population that's embarking on this period with almost zero wealth and we're looking at an object that's the ratio between the two, then even small absolute increases in that denominator of black per capita wealth is going to drive that gap down quite rapidly but at the same time it was important to investigate how much the elimination of slave wealth contributed to that drop so again we find that most of this is black wealth accumulation which others have documented so there there's a series of papers examining black wealth accumulation and white wealth accumulation mostly in the south uh, du bois studied georgia economic historians studied other southern states and they also found that black wealth accumulation outpaced that of white wealth accumulation during this period and that's coming largely from land purchases so you see this continued convergence through the early 20th century and it was kind of surprising to look at this full time series which has this hockey stick shape where there's a rapid fall at the beginning and then it kind of levels out and then we have this long slow part of the convergence path because you see there that most of the reduction in the racial wealth gap happened in the first several decades after emancipation including the era of Jim Crow. Now there was a resumption of the decline a pause in the early 20th century but a resumption of the decline between 1930 and 1980 what was uh, going on there? So there are a lot of things going on and we you know only scratched the surface of this so hopefully there will be more work understanding the intricacies of this historical period. One of the things that's uh going on you know one way that we can kind of evaluate whether convergence is happening quickly or slowly is to set up some kind of benchmark about what we would expect under certain assumptions so 
the benchmark that we set up is suppose we start the clock at 1870. We know what the initial gaps are in income and wealth. We know how much convergence has, in income has taken place over this whole time period. So we take that as given. And then we say, you know, let Black Americans have their wealth grow through savings and capital gains rates that are identical to those of white Americans. So that's the benchmark we, we use and say, all right, under initial conditions, what would the wealth gap be today with these equal savings rates and capital gains? What would it be going forward? And the answer is that just from those initial conditions, we'd still have a gap of three to one today and conversions would still be very distant scenario. Now we can use that to compare to what we actually see in the data. And convergence in the data has progressed more slowly. And actually the greatest deviation from this quote unquote equal conditions benchmark is indeed in the period of Jim Crow. So even though we did see convergence during that period, we should have seen much more had these conditions or opportunities to accumulate wealth been the same across the two groups. Now this picks up again and we see convergence in the data proceed more quickly between especially 1960 to 1980. We know that to be a period of racial convergence on a number of dimensions, likely stem, stemming from civil rights policy and some of the um, expansive you know, federal government policies at the time. So those policies discouraged labor market discrimination, boosted Black incomes. We think that that should translate into improvements in, in wealth. All of that said, we're kind of wiggling around a long convergence path, once again, stemming from these initial conditions. So these improvements in the 60s relative to, say, the 1920s return us to a path of convergence, but one that's going to take an extremely long time to carry out. One would have expected more convergence during the combination of the civil rights period, but also it was the golden age. Everybody was getting, it seemed like everybody's getting prosperous. Why did that not really have that much of an effect on, on the convergence path? Why didn't the line actually follow your should have been line? Once again, if you think about the level of that initial gap that Black Americans are sort of trying to make up for in this really 100-year period since the Civil War, that is just going to set us up in a convergence path that looks like this hockey stick that I described. In that scenario, as I mentioned, you have one group starting with near zero wealth. Any initial increases are going to drive the ratio down. And then as Black wealth builds up to a certain level, any additions to wealth are going to have smaller and smaller effects on this wealth gap. So it's really kind of this like mathematical law we've been locked into that you see by the 1950s onwards, we're just making incremental progress, if any progress, on closing the racial wealth gap. And then what we noticed is by the 1980s and onwards, the change in the wealth gap has actually been positive, meaning it's growing again. So that means we've sort of left the convergence path altogether. And what happened uh, since 1980? So the 1980s onwards mark a period of rising wealth to income ratios. That, that's part of what Thomas Piketty has documented in, in his work. And it really comes back to growth in wealth for the wealthiest. And a lot of that comes back to the rise of capital, rising capital gains, booming stock markets. And uh, in this section of the paper, we explore differences in the composition of wealth for Black and white Americans. And Black Americans hold the majority of their wealth in housing. On average, white portfolios are more diversified and there's a larger share in equity. So basically, the, you can think of this as the top wealthiest households their wealth is increasing dramatically, and there's virtually no Black people in that group. That's going to drive the average racial wealth gap up over this period. I'm speaking with Laura Derenencourt, Assistant Professor of Economics at Princeton. You identify a couple of factors affecting um, this over the long term. One, of course, the, um, the savings rate, and secondly, the rate of returns. So what's the breakdown between the contribution of those two factors? If you were to look over this whole historical time period, you know, capital gains they have only played an important role more recently. And the bigger factor has been what we document as these unconditional racial differences in savings rates. So we're just using our data to say, you know, how much of income is going, is being saved and contributing to wealth every year. 
for each racial group. And these differences in savings rates likely reflect differences in income. So richer people save more. That is something that we already know um, from other studies. And on average, Black Americans have lower income levels. They have lower wealth levels. Both of those are associated with lower savings rates. So that's been the dominant force probably for the bulk of this historical period. But starting in the 1980s, income processes in general have been contributing less to wealth because of what I described, this rising wealth to income ratio. So now stocks of wealth are so large for the wealthiest that just the capital gains alone are just going to increase wealth dramatically. And that difference in capital gains due to those differences in portfolios uh, between Black and white Americans, that's what's really driving the evolution of wealth gap now and, and likely going forward unless something changes. You don't really address this, but what role uh, would inheritance play? In our framework, we you know start off, I mentioned this equal conditions benchmark. One of the things that that framework would assume is frictionless transmission of wealth across generations for Black and white Americans. There is evidence that there are differences in inheritance rates um, and in the size of inheritances. That would show up in our framework. We have these parameters, S for the savings rates, Q for capital gains, but Q is really kind of an umbrella term. It would also capture if for some reason you're not transmitting as much wealth to the next generation as the other group, that's going to show up in a difference in a racial gap in Q. You could rationalize some of these gaps in Q as related to gaps in inheritance. We've been talking mostly about the asset side of the balance sheet. What about liabilities? We look into this and the asset gap is smaller than the net wealth gap, meaning net wealth here, meaning assets minus liabilities. This reflects the fact that Black households are more leveraged. They have a higher debt to overall wealth ratio than white Americans. What that means is that when downturns happen, that's going to be more consequential for Black Americans. So downturns in the housing market, for example, just leaves one more exposed to negative shocks. As I recall, Black households were really hammered by the bust in 2008, 2009, right? Absolutely. So that was, you know, in the long sweep of the racial wealth gap, one period where it certainly increased um, is related to the Great Recession. Okay. You do go into potential ways to um, address this problem. One would be reparations, which is a politically fraught subject. But uh, let's just imagine a world where that were possible. What would it do? Basically, what reparations would do is get us out of this slow convergence path that we've been locked into, given the initial wealth gaps under slavery, as well as differences in the opportunity to accumulate wealth that have been present since emancipation. And it's really hard to come up with policies other than large-scale redistribution of stocks of wealth that can achieve this. So some of the more common policies that are proposed when people talk about wanting to close the racial wealth gap are things like, oh, financial literacy or trying to improve savings behavior or wealth portfolio diversification. That, that seems like pretty small potatoes to me, that sort of thing. Am I, am I wrong in thinking that? Well, this is, this is what has dominated the literature. It is the discourse, but do you think it would make that much of a difference? What it can do at best, if you were to close these gaps in savings rates or capital gains, is return us to the extremely slow convergence path that we were on. So that path shows us no convergence for hundreds of years. And that's really the one of the main points we want to get across. You know, if we take seriously that the very long horizon we have to wealth equality between Black and white Americans is a product of the history, then that's when you start to you know, you need to bring more ambitious policies to the table if we're interested in addressing that. Okay, back to the reparations issue. So that would go a long way. A lot of the policy, reparation policies that have been discussed, maybe the most well-known ones um, put out by, for example, the economist Sandy Darity and Kirsten Mullen, they have a new book called From Here to Equality, The Case for yeah, Reparations. Yeah, I, I interviewed uh, Sandy about that uh, a few Great. months ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a proposal that seeks to actually close the wealth gap. Uh, and they argue that this is the appropriate amount of reparations. And the dollar amount actually ends up landing, you know, there are many ways to come up with that bill, foregone income of the enslaved, plus interest, et cetera. It all lands in a similar ballpark. And so what that does is drives the wealth ratio to one. You know, 
upon the transfer, setting aside how it gets done, we walk through a couple of scenarios in our paper. So that's what I mean about getting out of the long convergence path. Now, what happens after that depends on a lot of things. If a policy like this doesn't affect these differences in savings rates and capital gains, then even after reparations, you would see the wealth gap widen again, it would open back up. Um, so that's a, that's a key question. So we kind of, you know, land on, well, probably these kinds of policies are complementary, but the main point we want to get across is, you know, it's, it's in a post-reparations world where policies that target, you know, financial literacy, portfolio composition have their most bite. Because in the absence of those policies, we would see the wealth gap open up again. To return to our opening joke, though, if we had a robust welfare state, um, this wealth gap would be less important than it is, right? Wealth itself would be less important. That's a world we can dream of. Um, Now, there are people who say this sort of thing, that this racial wealth gap is really just capturing a class gap, and it doesn't really tell you anything in itself. What do you say to that kind of critique? You know, I'll be the first to admit that prior to the years spent working on this project, I held a somewhat similar view that a lot of these issues of inequality between racial groups can be addressed with universal policies that reduce overall inequality. But wealth is just a different beast from income. Wealth is a stock that builds over time. Income is a flow within a life cycle. So the wealth that one generation accumulates has to go somewhere. It goes to the next generation. And that's a sense in which wealth is inherently historical. And it, it basically contains a record of everything that's that's transpired before. So, I mean, there are many ways that our data and modeling framework can speak to this. We look at, you know, in the hypothetical world where black and white incomes have eventually converged, there has been over this full historical period income convergence. Let's imagine that it continues. It actually has stopped. So that's a separate question. Even in the world where income has converged, the wealth gap would remain substantial. Another way to arrive at this conclusion is to ask what would happen if we sort of equalize the income distribution between the two groups. So imagine that Black Americans enjoyed the same representation across different deciles of the income distribution as white Americans. The problem is the same, and we talked about this before, you know, that same level of income doesn't translate into the same amount of wealth for Black Americans as it does for white Americans. So you know, at best, that policy can lower the wealth gap, but it's certainly not going to eliminate it. And then, you know, many economists have studied this issue already and concluded there have to be factors other than income, um, because controlling for income doesn't get rid of the wealth gap. And then strikingly, education has even less explanatory power. There are some shocking statistics that drive this home, like the average college educated Black American has less wealth than the average non-high school educated white American. So all that's to say, While universal policies do wonders for the racial earnings gap, the income gap, and that's something that I've worked on previously, you know, the very powerful weapon that is the minimum wage in terms of reducing racial inequality, it's going to take additional work to close the wealth gap. And it has to, any policies that are serious about closing the racial wealth gap, they have to reckon with the origins of that gap under slavery. Seems to me that this racial wealth gap is a really important component of what people talk about when they talk about structural racism. I mean, this really is a material basis for the perpetuation of an enormous social gap between black people and white people in the U.S. Yes. And um, it's, you know, I'm going out on a limb here, but it's kind of like proof of concept. Um, We we call our paper Wealth of Two Nations because that's how we model this process. We say, what if there's a black nation and a white nation and they have these initial endowments and we let the clock run and we look at what happens? The persistence of this racial gap and and how well that model does to describe the data, it's it's really an indication of the process of race itself, right? It's this wealth gap has produced these two groups. It was part of under slavery is creating this group of Black Americans, segregating them economically to the point where modeling white and Black Americans as two nations works really well to describe inequality. And, you know, all the uh, pulling on bootstraps you want do not make much of a difference here, right? Exactly. I mean, those will, again, at best, 
return us to a convergence path, which we have left in recent years, return us to a convergence path that's going to take hundreds of years to play out. That was Laura Durenancourt, Assistant Professor of Economics at Princeton and co-author of a new working paper for the National Bureau of Economic Research, Wealth of Two Nations, the U.S. Racial Wealth Gap, 1860 to 2020. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Home of the brave, land of the free. I don't want to be mistreated by no bourgeoisie law in a bourgeois town. Town. I got the boys all blues are gonna bend the news all around. Those some of the bourgeois blues by Leadbelly. Next, the dark side of Jack Welch. Not that there was that much of a bright side. The once-worshipped CEO of GE in the 1980s and 1990s. Welch was the embodiment of a spirit of that time, the rude boss who was one of the pioneers of the shareholders' first style of running public companies. He moved GE away from what he once scornfully described as bending metal towards what he thought were more lucrative pursuits. His holy trinity was downsizing deal-making, and financialization. Things look great for those decades if you were a shareholder in GE, not so great if you were a worker or a resident of a town devastated by one of his many plant closures. After Welch retired in 2001, it soon became clear that he'd hollowed out the company, once one of the titans of American capitalism, and now a wreck. Here to talk about Welch is David Gellis, author of The Man Who Broke Capitalism, just out from Simon & Schuster. Gellis, who is also a New York Times columnist, idealizes the old days a bit too much for my taste and assigns the personality of Welch too much responsibility for systemic changes, but the book is still a very useful portrait of how he got into this necrotic phase of capitalism. David Gellis. As I said before I pressed the record button, I'm old enough to remember the Jack Welch years, but I bet a lot of people don't. Who precisely was he and why was he such a historical figure? Jack Welch was the CEO of General Electric from 1981 to 2001. And it's hard for a lot of people to remember or even understand at this point. But back then, GE was truly one of the most influential companies in the country. Not only was it an enormous company with really big and diversified manufacturing base, but it also had this history of being the company that other CEOs and other corporations look to for guidance on how to behave, guidance on what balance to strike with their employees, their communities, the government. And so Jack Welch took over GE at this pivotal time and absolutely transformed not only the company, but the way in which corporations operated in society. And he, um, in many ways, was the embodiment of modes of thought that were making the rounds. Uh, in academic economics, you had Milton Friedman, Friedrich von Hayek. Then also we saw in, in the political sphere, uh, Reagan, Thatcher moving to dominance. So he really um, fit into the times or actually turned um, the thinking of the times into real management style, right? He was a, very much a man of that 80s moment. Yes. And you hit on, I think, what is one of the key insights I had in reporting and writing this book, which is that there is this big difference between theory and practice. And it's undoubtedly true that men like Milton Friedman and Friedrich von Hayek had been talking about and writing about the role of business in society and how maybe there should be more emphasis than there had been in the post-war years on just sheer profit maximization. But no one until Welch had the audacity and the power to actually make it real, to take one of the biggest, most influential companies in the country and single-mindedly transform it into simply just a company that was going to set all those other concerns aside and focus exclusively on maximizing relatively short-term returns for shareholders. And that's what Jack Welch did. And he became one of our first celebrity CEOs, right? He's in the cover, not just of business magazines, but it even filtered into the broader popular culture. Jack Welch got attention right away. Again, he was bound to be influential just by sheer virtue of being CEO of GE. 
people were going to pay attention. But it's important to note that if initially he was villainized, he was called Neutron Jack because he did so much downsizing, so many factory closures that people were initially a little rattled. But over the course of this long tenure, the narrative entirely changed. And you're right, he became a celebrity CEO. He was lionized. He was on talk shows. He was mingling with movie stars. And by the end of his career, he was named Manager of the Century by Fortune magazine. And Harvard Business School was celebrating his exploits with case studies. And he really did become this uber CEO, the one all others have still used as a reference point for what makes a great manager even today. The GE he inherited was the classic industrial company, the old line industrial company, the old <laughs> golden age America kind of uh, enterprise that had a finger in so many pies, you know, jet engines, um, light bulbs, appliances, you know, they, they touched every aspect of American life. But had it run into trouble? Was it in need of, of some kind of revival? Um, was Welch's approach addressing an actual problem? There is no doubt that things were going to change dramatically at the moment Welch took over. Remember, this is the very early 80s. Japan and Germany are finally on the rise as global industrialized economies after the long recovery from World War II. Technology is changing. Supply chains are changing. Wall Street is coming online in a way that it just hadn't been before. So no doubt about it, things were going to change. But GE was not in trouble. And yet, he reacted to these changing times in the extreme. It was his view that everything had to change, and that came at the cost of people. And that's so much of what this book is about. It's about the human cost of what happens when business leaders stop thinking about their employees, stop thinking about their communities, and just focus on the numbers. This leads to bad places, and I don't think we have to look far in our society to understand that that's still true today as well. You say there's a worldview, Welchism, that he used to run the company, but also pervaded corporate America eventually. What are the, the tenets of Welchism? Welchism is a term I use to describe not only his actual management styles and the way he changed the company, which was through, as I mentioned, this downsizing, this just sheer relentless layoffs and factory closures, but also the deal making, his obsession with mergers and acquisitions and just buying other companies to get bigger for the sake of being bigger. And as well, this financialization, he turned GE from an industrial company into a financial company that was essentially an unregulated bank. But it also encompasses his very ruthless, brutal, bullying management style. Welch was this sort of prototypical alpha male CEO who led through fear. And it's that mix of the focus on the bottom line, the focus on short-term results and abrasive downsizing, deal-making, financialization, all married with this very outdated, I would argue, management style that I call Welchism. His predecessor, GE, Red Jones, was very British, genteel, cerebral. Into it comes this bull in the china shop with the rude personality. What was the collision like between Welch and the inherited GE culture? People were surprised when Welch got the job, and, and Jones was the one that gave it to him because he could not have been more different than the Reg Jones you just described. And yet there was a sense, I think even Reg Jones and other GE executives got it. There was a sense that something was going to change. That the 1980s were going to be very different than the 1970s. And yes, there would be a need for someone with big ideas, bold ideas to come in and change it. But again, what Welch did, he did everything in the extreme. And what that meant was a company that for the better part of 100 years had not had an adversarial relationship with its employees, suddenly had a CEO who was literally waging what his own colleagues called the campaign against loyalty. He didn't want his own employees to feel a sense of connection or loyalty with the company. He wanted it to be as transactional as possible. And this is another one of those elements of Welch's tenure that is still with us today. When you look at the way Amazon treats its warehouse employees, when you look at the way so many other companies are willing to just enact mass layoffs on the drop of a hat because their EPS for the quarter is looking a little off, that's the legacy of Jack Welch and his campaign against loyalty. But it could not have been more different than the ethos, than the relationship companies had with their employees before Welch came on the scene. 
Now, there was some uh, hostility in GE's relations with its workers, right? Uh, Boerism is a word that uh, unionists still talk about. Absolutely. You're referring to Lemuel Bouar, who was the head of employee relations for GE before Welch came on the scene. And, you know, it deserves a lot of credit. Welch never went to war with the unions. He never faced a national strike. But what did he do? Look at the trends of union representation during his 20 years. It goes down and down and down. And he had the rather shrewd insight that it didn't make sense to go to war with the unions. Instead, he was going to diminish their power by moving labor to non-union areas in the United States and through offshoring and outsourcing, simply moving factories abroad to countries like Mexico and India, where there just weren't American labor unions they had to deal with. That, too, is still with us today. I think he famously said that uh, the ideal arrangement would be to have your plant on a barge, right? What a image. He said, in the ideal world, every factory would be on a barge. So we could just float around the world, totally stateless, disconnected from communities and individuals, chasing favorable exchange rates and cheap labor costs. That's the absolute distillation of Jack Welch's vision of labor. GE was very famous for its appliances. Now they're not very good anymore, um, I have to say, as from personal experience. But he moved in and uh, overhauled the appliance division, right? What did he do to appliances? In time after time, the pattern sort of repeated itself ad infinitum when he had his way with the big industrial businesses. There was always a huge amount of cost cutting. There was a huge amount of downsizing. Oftentimes, there was a real reduction in research and development. And listen, it's important to know that the effects of those strategies play out not in the course of months, but over many, many years. And so for much of his time as CEO, things didn't look so bad. But almost immediately after he retired, his successor, Jeff Immelt, took a hard look at the company he had inherited and realized that so many of its core businesses were not nearly as strong as they appeared and not nearly as strong as he had expected. And that was the result of decades and decades of underinvestment and offshoring. But it's important to know that when you buy a GE appliance today, it's not made by GE. Chinese companies have bought those business units from GE and licensed the GE name. That's the Jack Welch legacy right there. Welch had an approach towards uh, personnel management nicknamed Rank and Yank. What is that? Well, he would have liked you to call it the vitality curve, which is this very sort of euphemistic uh, description of what is an absolutely ruthless management tactic that he pioneered and innovated early in his tenure. You take all your employees, you put 20% in the top category, the A players, you put 70% in the middle, the B players, and you put 10% at the bottom, the C players. Those 10% every year are shown the door. And at a company as large as GE, that's tens of thousands of people a year. That practice too, it might seem anachronistic. It's still with us. Uber, WeWork, Microsoft, big companies in the last many years have done the same thing. I'm speaking with David Gellis, author of The Man Who Broke Capitalism, just out from Simon & Schuster. At the same time he was eviscerating the appliance division, he was deeply in love with the finance side. What was he doing? Um, What what areas were growing in, in the finance side? Even before he took over, he understood that finance was going to be the part of GE that was going to allow General Electric to become what he hoped and ultimately achieved to be the biggest company in the world on the stock market. He understood that they had this opportunity to grow the finance division by leaps and bounds. And he did it by getting the company into all kinds of arcane lending businesses. So you think of GE as a light bulb manufacturer, an appliance manufacturer? No. Under Welch, it was getting into Thai auto loans. It was getting into commercial real estate. And it got so bad that in the years just after he retired, this momentum to get into any arcane financial product where they might find a little margin and use their balance sheet to capitalize on it, led GE in 2005 to buy one of the biggest providers of subprime mortgages just before the financial crisis. That's where Jack Welch led GE into the subprime mortgages. That, of course, was after uh, Welch had retired. It was indeed, but it was the continuation of this strategy that he not only embodied, but articulated and made clear. He understood that there was 
easy money. And he called it that. He called it that in his autobiography. He said, I couldn't believe how easy it was to make money after pounding and grinding things in the factory for so much of the start of his career. When he understood what Wall Street could do, he was blown away. And he started growing GE Capital early in his career, and it kept getting bigger to the point that it ultimately accounted for almost a majority of GE's revenues and a large majority of its profits at its peak. And now he said, I think uh, one of the great things about finance is you don't have to bend metal. And it seems like the, uh, a great deal of the American management class really is not interested in bending metal anymore. Um, so Welch led the way on that. No doubt about it. When you look at manufacturing jobs, which at least when I wrote this book about a year ago, were at literally an all-time low, it's impossible not to see these sort of long-tail ripple effects of his management philosophies still with us today. Now, I will add, I try to end this book on a note of hope, but I will add that manufacturing jobs are finally starting to come back. I think there's a recognition in the boardrooms of America and even perhaps in some of the political offices that it's good to have manufacturing jobs in America. It's good to have high paid jobs where there are factories where we can employ people in the middle of the country. When you look at so much of the carnage across this country and these hollowed out towns in just about every state in the nation. These are towns that once employed people at companies like GE. These are cities that once thrived off GE factories. So if we want to turn this country around, one good way to do that might be by bringing really good quality jobs right back into the middle of the heartland and getting people back to work at high paid jobs like they used to have at GE. One of the appeals of finance, aside from the fact that uh, they made money at it, was that uh, it uh, assisted Welch in uh, the dark arts of earnings management. Uh, what was that all about? GE Capital, this finance division, got so big, so complex, and had this army of people that could essentially close the quarter. That's the terminology they used. However, they needed to. So if they told Wall Street that they were going to, for example, make a $327 million profit in the third quarter of a year. But a couple weeks before, it looked like that might be coming in a little low. Well, they had this army of financial analysts and deal makers who could go the very last minute, do a series, a flurry of deals. You could sell a little of this, buy a little of that, take a write off for this, maybe even lay off a couple thousand people to take a charge, to take a write off here and use all those various complex processes to come in and hit the earnings at exactly the number they said they would. And as a result, Jack Welch beat or beat earning expectations for something close to 80 quarters in a row, which is an absolutely unprecedented run. But a lot of people right when he left said, wait a sec, this feels like, and it probably was too good to be true. People started taking a close look at all that almost immediately after he retired. And GE stock started falling and never recovered. There is a uh, an army of Welch acolytes, a diaspora of Welchies that spread across corporate America who did a lot of damage in their own way. Uh, just could you uh, give us some of the highlights of the, the Welch diaspora? I love that term you just coined. I wish it was in the book. I think you called them <laughs> Welchies, Welchies. I'm going to start using that, Doug. Thank you for that. But no doubt about it. Even before he left, many of his disciples started going off to run other companies. It continued right around his retirement when two of the three finalists to be his successor went off and took jobs as CEOs of 3M and Home Depot. And it continued as even today, you look at David Zaslav, who's running Time Warner Discovery. You look at Dave Calhoun, who's running Boeing. These are men who studied at Welch's knee embodied his ideals and are still putting his playbook to work. At one point, more than 16 CEOs of Fortune 500 companies had worked for Welch at GE. At 3M was particularly seems inappropriate because this is a company that uh, was famous for its loose culture where innovation uh, was really revered. And that kind of innovation required an informality and even a recklessness almost to a, to a bean counter that was completely incompatible with Welchism, right? Uh, Welch at 3M was not a happy story. 
Well, this is one of these instances where you do see this push and pull of the short term and the long term of the financial results and the culture of the company. Because Jim McNerney, who you're referring to, who took over 3M right in 2001, right as Welch retired, he didn't get the top job. So he went to run 3M. Listen, he deserves credit. The financial results of 3M for his several years at the company were pretty good. The stock did move up, but you talk to people who were there. You read all the accounts of like the guy who invented the post-it note and they say the rigor he brought to the company, the formality, the hierarchical top-down management style absolutely eroded that creative culture that allowed 3M engineers and scientists to come up with some of their best ideas. And when the new CEO replaced McNerney, and I think it was 2005, he said, listen, it's been a fine year, a couple of years financially, but we got to get back to the culture that made this company great in the first place. And he started loosening up a lot of things, stopped focusing exactly on making, as you said, those bean counters so happy quarter after quarter and started focusing on the long term again. When Welch left just before the September 11th attacks and his successor, Jeff Immelt, took over just after, what Immelt found was a company that uh, on the inside did not look as good as it seemed on the outside. And there was a moment of reckoning, you know, like Bill Gross was uh, calling uh, uh, the company's strategy into question. But then Immelt seemed to get uh, some degree of the magic back. What happened during the Immelt years? If you look at the stock chart of GE after Immelt takes over. Listen, it goes down and then it goes up and then it goes down again and then it goes up a little more and it goes down and keeps going down until Immelt finally leaves the company. There were good moments and bad moments. And we have to remember that GE was so enormous that it was also going to sort of follow the market up and down. But on balance, if you look at what Jeff Immelt did, it's largely the continuation of the Jack Welch strategy. He will try to take credit and probably deserve some credit for trying to bring some manufacturing jobs back. He did invest in things like the GE wind business, for example, and he was able to grow the medical business. But on balance, this strategy of continuing to chase deals and Immelt made it fabulous series of absolutely terrible deals. Some of the biggest acquisitions GE ever made that just didn't pan out. And he was doing them to just chase that revenue. He continued to let GE Capital get bigger and bigger, growing much larger, in fact, under Jeff Immelt's watch than it ever did under Jack Welch's watch. And ultimately what happened, you mentioned Bill Gross. That was the moment right around when Sarbanes-Oxley of course, was enacted. And there was a much more strenuous, strict, serious look from not only financial regulators, but also from investors. So all of a sudden, that earnings management that we described earlier became a bit harder to do. And then, of course, when the financial crisis hit, Jeff Immelt is left holding subprime mortgages, commercial real estate loans, all of these dubious financial products that were enormously exposed. And that really was a moment when even Jeff Immelt will tell you, he had a chance to reset the company. There was an opportunity to rapidly, for example, unwind GE Capital and try to reinvest rapidly in American manufacturing. And it just didn't happen. The earnings management, the temptation of hitting that quarterly report one more time and pleasing analysts was just, as he used the word, so seductive. It couldn't stop. So where is GE now? It was incredible timing that as I was finishing up this book, the current CEO, Larry Culp, announced late last year that GE was going to be broken up into three separate companies once and for all. So there will still be a one called GE, but the rest of them are going to be split up. And this vision that Jack Welch had of the largest, most indomitable corporation, the world's largest company, the most valuable company in the world, it is literally being broken up for pieces today. Now, at the end of the book, you um, you lay out an agenda to undo Welchism, treat the workers better, invest in the long term, take care for the environment, you know, dethrone profit maximization as the North Star of uh, corporate strategy. That all sounds nice, but what is the incentive for uh, the managerial class to do these things? You hit the nail on the head, Doug. This is something I've been talking about for weeks as I've been having conversations about this book. The incentive systems have to change, and that's the hardest part. We can look to 
magnanimous CEOs to make some changes that might benefit workers or might take better care of the environment. But until the actual policies change, until Wall Street changes, it's going to be really hard for those types of sort of new models of management to take hold in a big way. I'm not totally pessimistic. I think there's hope. I think those incentives are starting to change. We are seeing more companies start to measure these things. When we start to measure these things, they start to pay attention to them a bit more. We're seeing ratings agencies take into account other factors beyond just the bottom line and thinking about companies' credit worthiness. And we're also seeing some sort of rather remarkable experiments, things like the long-term stock exchange, real sort of radical new models of organizing public companies that I think, again, very slowly could begin to turn the tide, but we got a lot of work to do. Well, you mentioned the transition uh, from the Gilded Age uh, of the late 19th, early 20th century to the Golden Age, you know, the post-war decades. It took a depression and an overhaul of the entire state mechanism through the New Deal to make that transition. Uh, can we make that transition without something equally dramatic? That's a totally smart question. And I don't know the answer to it, right? I don't know if we need some cataclysmic historical event to sort of rupture things. I certainly hope not, because inevitably, there's a huge amount of human suffering when those kind of things happen. But the way I think about it, Doug, is that there was the pendulum. And the pendulum for about 50 years now has been swinging away from this more sort of stakeholder-centered model that we saw during the golden age of capitalism and the post-war years where the middle class was growing and companies were really sharing wealth with their employees, with their communities, even with the government. It's been moving away and away and away from that sort of equilibrium for decades now. I think we are at a moment where it's potentially starting to move back. It's at that moment of pause, I hope, before it really starts swinging back. And my hope is that it continues to gain momentum and some of those neglected stakeholders get a, a fairer shake in the years to come. That was David Gellis, author of The Man Who Broke Capitalism, just out from Simon & Schuster. That's it for me, Doug Henwin. Let's go with this, some of the Foxtrot, Opus 61 by Heinz Thiessen, performed by Matt Rubenstein. Till next week, bye.